rather than on saying independent, self-sufficient, self-sufficiency. This is uh, something to ask yourself. Because I think the, the Western mind, at least my conditioning, was uh, the idea of becoming independent and self-sufficient, not to depend on people, not to be dependent on somebody else, but to be independent. And to be able to provide for my needs without having to ask anyone else for anything. This was a kind of American uh, ideal. Then the Buddhist monk, is uh, the Buddhist samana, is one who makes themselves uh, uh, an alms mendicant. We actually depend on the kindness of others because we can't be independent. It's forbidden to have money of our own or to plant uh, gardens for to grow food for ourselves and things like this. We're, we, we, you know, restricted by the discipline that the Buddha established uh, to make us totally dependent upon others. And it's strange that such a tradition can, can be passed on from one generation to the next. It's quite remarkable, isn't it, that it was established in India 2,537, 38 years ago. And, it, and now we find the same tradition in there being beginning to have some kind of presence taking root in a country like Britain 2,500 years later. And it works, is that we don't have it. We're not exactly uh, living on the edge of starvation, or just barely making it. And why is that? Why, why do these people come here? Why does the Cambodian community come here? Why do the Sri Lankan people come here? Thais and the Europeans, why do, they, why do they take time to come here or to offer support? Because of their respect, something in, in us respects that, the living the holy life. What is living the holy life? And you can see in uh, like a, in a retreat, meditation retreat, uh, where they, we, we have uh, deliberately set up so that uh, they, you can reflect a lot in the silence, not to spend your time uh, reading or talking, distracting yourself, but to, to sit and walk and use the four postures for reflection, contemplation, listening, awakened awareness. So that you begin to be able to notice the, the, the kind of distractions, the habits, the, the sleepiness, the dullness, the, the perfunctoriness, the deadening, deadness of one's own mind, just the, the kind of obsessive thoughts or fears or motions, uh, movements of the mind that are just causes of force of habit. 
so that you're you're beginning to see, you're beginning to say, by observing, by listening, by watching, by paying attention, then you you're you're beginning to develop an awareness that is transcending those very conditions. You're awakening to life, to Dhamma, to truth. And so that is something worthy of respect, worthy of alms. That which listens and is awake in the, and watchful. That, this is the, to be able to trust in just that. To trust, put your faith, surrender to, just being awake and aware. It's easy to say, but the, the habits of the mind and the emotions are always causing a lot of doubt and distraction and... and uh, in endlessly interrupting and obstructing that. Because one thing that we're very used to is identifying with thought or thinking and, and we love to think about things. We're, we're conditioned to think and endlessly go from one thought to another and get obsessed with our thoughts, with our views. We have emotions, we have emotional reactions. That because of the sensitive state we're in, is we feel threatened, we feel frightened, we feel greed, and uh, we, we have all kinds of feelings that, that come to us through the experiences of life. They're quite natural to, uh, to experience. But we get also conditioned by that. We get emotionally kind of programmed to, to just be reactive and caught up in reacting to things uh, and not knowing what's happening, not really observing, just being uh, kind of victimized by the conditioning of the mind. So in meditation, we're observing that. We're observing just the, what it is like to be sensitive and feel life and to, to just how words can affect our conscious experience. A tone of voice or a sound of some sort, or just the, the weather. What the weather's like can affect, can, can create a mood for us. Or how we're feeling, if we're feeling good, or if our, we're having a stomach ache, or a headache, or a backache, or whatever. There's definitely the, the mood, the mind, the, the whole thing uh, is, uh, can be affected by the people that come or don't come, by the, whether it's a morning or evening, whether it's silent retreat or ordinary uh, daily life, whether you're in London or in Amravati or Chitters or wherever, uh, we, we feel, we pick up, we're, we're, it impresses, it contacts, this form when we have some kind of reaction. So that which is awake and aware is the, the like the witness of the watcher, the silent thinker, the silent watcher, the uh, and it's the silent watcher is not a 
is not a judge, it's just noticing this is the way it is. The attraction, the repulsion, the fear, the desire, the love, the hate, the elation, the depression, the boredom, the dullness, the deadeningness of just repetitive thinking and, and, uh, and habits of the mind. We're aware of these. And in that awareness, and not, not making problems, not uh, trying to uh, make judgments, but recognizing, realizing these are the way it is, the, the moment is like this, not making a problem, not adding anything or trying to destroy, then we begin to experience the deathless. Well, that which is awake, that which is aware, that which is pure. And that is always present in every moment that we're paying attention, we're connected to that, we are that way. And then as soon as we uh, get distracted, fall back into the momentum of habit, fear and desire, grasping, then, then we become something, somebody, something. And so that is a, and those things that we become are, are, are like dead things. They're habits, they're soulless, they're empty. But yet, that's what we're used to. We're used to that, used to boring thoughts, used to just being caught up in, in habits and following desires or reacting this way, reacting that way. And yet something in us, intuitively, we know there's something more to life. Most of us have had fairly uh, good lives, you know, decent lives where they were, uh, and yet even when, when our lives were that privileged or pleasant enough, we knew that just going on with the momentum, just being caught in the momentum of habit, reactiveness is somehow is, is like a waste of one's life. We want to live our whole life just, just uh, caught in, in the conditioning of the mind the meaninglessness of life. Because there's something in us that also aspires or recognizes intuitive uh, kind of aspiration or longing for what is ultimately true. What is real, what is, isn't dead, isn't soulless, isn't just uh, the, repeating the same old habits over and over again till we die. So in, in meditation, we, we began to get insight into this. But we do, we have these moments of insight where we understand. Uh, and but then, of course, the habit tendencies are still very strong. And we still have to cope with the uh, with the tendencies that we have, a lot of them very unskillful. 
So meditation then is, is after the initial insight, is to, is to just keep uh, awakening to life. So monastic lives in monastic form and, and our life here is, is for that purpose. The, the things that support, that surround, that influence us are meant to be here to remind, to awaken. Not to, just, not to condition us into becoming Buddhist nuns, Buddhist monks, and Buddhists and cults. And, and, uh, trying to, to, uh, to become something, uh, something else but to awaken, to know the truth of the way it is. And that's something only you can do yourself. You know, the lay people provide the requisites and the, uh, we have a fairly adequate situation to live in and so forth, and the teaching is provided and monastic life is, is encouraged. But then the onus of this practice is upon each one of us. It's something we need to develop our, and, and not, uh, not just ride along in the system. Awaken to life. So that we do that through paying attention. through contemplating, through reflecting. The Buddhist teachings are reflective teachings. They're, they're there to take and then contemplate them and apply them to your own experience. So that you're, the Four Noble Truths is, is a teaching that we're, we're taking, we're studying in, in its, in its uh, formal presentation that you find in the suttas in the Dhammajaka Sutta, but then you're getting that from, from a book and then you take that and you contemplate it and then apply it to suffering, your own suffering. What is suffering? What is dukkha? And the causes, the origins, and the cessation, and the path. This is, these are, these, these teachings are for, to help you to look and pay attention to uh, your own experience of life. The things, the suffering, the conditions, the happiness, the highs, the lows, the, the successes and failures that you experience, that you have in, throughout the day and night. So these teachings, the Dhamma teachings, are to, to help you to look at things, to remind you. As a suffering, well, the Buddha emphasized dukkha as the first noble truth, because this is the experience of life that most of us, that the ordinary human being tries to uh, get rid of. We, we want happiness, we don't want to suffer. And so, 
Happiness is what we tend to keep searching for in life. If we're just out of the, the desire to be happy, be secure and, and enjoy life and feel, uh, feel good about everything, uh, this is what this, what this is the attractive force. This is what is desirable. And suffering, misery, despair, uh, old age, sickness, and death, disease, uh, all the, the depression of what we don't want, what we, we, we'd like to avoid, have as little experience with that as possible. So because that's the way the, the human, the, 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 the attractive and repulsive forces of, of this realm that we live in, then the Buddha deliberately raised the experience of suffering as a, as a truth to understand, to go toward, to investigate. So instead of running away from suffering, we're going right into it, looking at it. Which can be just on the level of physical discomfort or emotional pain, distress. It can be uh, real anguish and despair, or it can be uh, just annoyance or irritation or doubt or whatever level of agitation, frustration we are experiencing through the mind and the body, and that we begin to see that as the first noble truth. To understand it, to, to look directly into it, to feel it, to be with it. So that brings us to paying attention, doesn't it? attention to the, the, the this negative side of experience which usually we, we we are just aware of it as it happens and then the desire to to get away from it we're caught in the in a reaction to it but through this emphasis awakening uh, state to the first noble truth then instead of just, just trying to get get rid of it we understand it. We go, we stand under it. We examine it. We investigate. We're willing to suffer in this way because we're, we're contemplating this uh, despair or this unhappiness or sadness or loneliness or, or uh, self-hatred or anger or greed or doubt or confusion, whatever these, these uh, experiences might be, we're willing to experience them. Because we're looking at them now in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of this is causing me uh, to feel bad. When we think of it in terms of ourselves, then we don't want it. As a person, we want to be happy, we want to feel good about everything. don't like pain, don't like sickness, don't like uh, to feel lonely or despairing or feel insecure. Just watching in a community how, uh, you know, how we want to, to get, demand security from each other sometimes. Through smiling at each other, through 
feeling that we're friends and supporting each other and and uh, through everybody kind of uh, supporting the system and, and it, sometimes it get, you get uh, periods where people get very negative about monastic life and so forth and then it's, it's very disturbing because uh, we then it makes us doubt you know it makes us suffer when somebody else is they criticizing a monastic life and, and then we can feel you know this, this, the, the suffering of our own doubt where they, the uh, affirmations of monastic life are uh, we say it's wonderful yes it's really this is the best place to be and it makes us feel secure because the feeling of insecurity, of being uncertain, ambivalent, wavering, is a suffering. I think Buddha's teaching is, is addresses one of the problems of human that humans have of doubt, which is. Uh, Incredible, uh, incredibly realistic, very realistic approach. Is instead of just denying and uh, forbidding doubt, doubt is actually encouraged to feel doubt. Well, I think this is the, this this particular approach was what attracted me to Buddhism because. I didn't have the kind of positive uh, abilities to affirm things that, that Christianity demanded of me. So when, when I was a Christian, I had to believe in God and believe in you, you're not supposed to doubt. And, uh, so, and that was, uh, that I found I couldn't do, I just couldn't believe in things. So one of the thing that drew me to this particular style was the fact that doubt was allowed and even considered uh, something to, to uh, you know, something helpful to your spiritual life rather than that the devil trying to uh, take you over. Now, what is the nature of doubt? You know, what is it? This uncertainty, insecurity. I don't know. What is? What am I to do? Is Buddhism right or wrong? Is, uh, should I become a, a a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist nun? Should I? What should I do? How should I practice? Have I attained any state? Have I? Where am I after all these years? I don't know, what should I do? These kind of, this state of mind, the, 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 mind, the mental state of uncertainty. Most unpleasant. People that are caught in doubt, it's just like, you're kind of, in kind a of miserable state most of the time. Because you, it's, a, it's a, such a, when you really look at it, it's, I don't know what to do, I'm, and the struggle against it. It's not the actual doubt, but the struggling with it. 
being caught in, in reactions, emotional reactions to uncertainty. So we, tell me what to do. Sometimes people want a strong teacher who say, you do this, you do that, this is what you do. You believe in this and you do that and you'll get this and, and uh, this is right and that's wrong and then, oh, somebody's going to tell me what to do. Should I become a monk or not? Yes. <laughs> or, or no. At least you've got, you know, somebody telling you. And so in some way that gives us a, a security. Ajahn Sumato told me. And we quote, isn't it? We love to quote, like, in the scriptures it says, or Lumpa Cha told me this, or Bhutadasa, or quote from the authorities. Uh, and it gives us, you know, this makes it, you know, a kind of must, or this makes it right. But in contemplating doubt as the first noble truth, is, is, uh, is uh, something to, to uh, understand, not through trying to solve all the doubts and figure out all the answers, but in getting to know the feeling, what it is like, that state of uncertainty, insecurity, doubting, and the emotional reaction you have to it when you don't know what to do, you don't know where you are, you don't, uh, you're, you're full of uh, questions and, and uncertainties in your life. And the struggle to always you're feeling very ill at ease and not knowing things. There's always wanting to find out, always wanting some kind of certainty, some kind of answer, somebody to tell you, to have God come and tell you, or have voices from out there, like Devadas or Bodhisattvas. Some people go really loony, don't they? Bodhisattvas tell them to do this and that, or Spirits from outer space. Well, just uh, some, some, some very confident and certain teacher or guru. So in uh, this contemplation of doubt, it's, uh, you're beginning to say, develop attention and awareness around the, the state of the experience of insecurity. And I remember reading a book years ago, years and years ago, that was when there were very few books on Buddhism uh, around in English. And this one was called The Doctrine of Insecurity. And then I remember it was about Buddhism. And then uh, contemplating just the, the life of an alms mendicant, it's, so, it's, you know, basically it seems so insecure, where you're dependent on alms. Now how do you know uh, people are going to come and feed us? You know, if we had money and we had you know, we had our own way of, of just making sure that, that uh, 
That gives us a sense of security, but the alms mendicant your mind goes, I think some of you have been going to dog, going off into places, just going off and, and then depending upon taking risks that maybe nobody will feed you for the day. It's quite, quite amazing what happens when you, you go out and suddenly you, you don't have somebody who's going to buy you something or you haven't arranged for somebody to meet you and you're just dependent upon the goodness, the generosity, the kindness of strangers. And yet, the, you, you tell me how some of the experiences where suddenly, out of nowhere, somebody will come up and offer some, some food. I mean, take, take an interest in trying to uh, provide you with a meal. But it's taking a risk, isn't it? Insecurity, uncertainty, is what, you know, like modern life is we don't, we want, uh, we want the government to kind of prop up everything, make everything certain for us. Here in Western Europe, European countries, the, the EEC and so forth, the state, countries like this, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, the uncertainty now of Russia economics and politics and it's just we feel so ill at ease with the uncertainties of of the of, of, of the political scenes in the Middle East or in Africa or even here in Europe even at, even though life in Western Europe is very secure more so than almost anywhere else it's still we still feel insecure because there's so, so many things to doubt so many things that might happen, so many things could go wrong. In relationships and in, in everything, there's always this, this idea that somebody is going to leave us. Somebody is going to leave us alone. We won't have any friends or the one we love will, will leave us or will no longer love us and so forth. So the, the, this feeling of always of, of uh, just being uncertain. And in monastic life, the, the, the meditation always brings so much uncertainty and insecurity to, the, to consciousness. Trying to get your meditation together so you're certain, got it, you, this is it, samadhi, and now you know exactly what to do. But the, the use of doubt, I found, is a, is a way of practice. Like a Korean master in the States uses, the, he has a term called the don't know mind. Not even good English, is it? Don't know mind, they don't know. And that they practice, don't know, I don't know. <laughs> where, where, so how many of you just wouldn't, you know, would feel very, you know, you want to know, I want to know this one, or that one, <laughs> get all the answers, figure it all out. 
But the, the dono mind or the, or the insecurity is, is then, is not just a, a habit of just refusing to find out anything or just going to sleep into a state of I don't know anything. But it's, but it's noticing this uncertainty. What's going to happen? What's the nature of existence? What, what's the self? What's, what's the real Dhamma? What's this? What's that? How should I? I don't know. I don't know. Don't know. And so you're, you're more or less uh, beginning to be aware of that unknowing, not knowing. To know the unknown. So there's, and to do that, of course, you're paying attention to insecurity rather than reacting to it. You're, you're, you're attentive to doubt rather than trying to find the answer. Because insecurity and doubt leave the mind quite empty. You know, it's a, the, the mind, the, the conscious mind, then it goes into kind of a blank. You know, on the, there's a level of emptiness. I don't know. And then the, the, if, you, if you contemplate that not knowing, it's empty. There's a sense of emptiness of the mind. So it's a it's a upaya or a skillful means to to really meditate on that emptiness to cultivate that emptiness because that that is allows us to, say, get perspective on the conditioning of the mind, which is always full of ourselves, full of problems, me and mine, I want, I don't, I like, I don't like, I should, I shouldn't. I mean, we're full, the minds are full, tuck a block, crammed, like sardines in a tin, packed with thoughts and views, opinions. Everything kind of squashed in in the mind. And there's no space. It's just you're suffocating in your own thoughts and, and habits. And now, I mean, in the information age, you know, we've got you know, people keep giving me books. I keep, uh, I have them in my room, in my kuti. I have, I started out only with a few books. And people keep giving me books, and uh, and I keep getting rid of books, and I keep getting more books. Till the sh- shelves are out of stack, you know, the, uh, the shelves are kind of bending down, sagging in the middle. Thick books too, and and all worth reading and interesting. I don't collect trash. <laughs> all profound stuff. Big, thick, well-bound, well-printed, very attractive books just to keep feeding the mind. In the uh, Zen school, uh, uh, this I found years ago, 
even before I went to uh, stay with Lung Po Cha in uh, in uh, Uborn, was I like I developed this practice called the Huato, the Chinese practice from doubt, developing doubt. Because when uh, in my first years as Samanera, I figured out through reading and contemplating the word of the Buddha from the Pali scriptures, I could see, I saw through contemplating all that, that I, I could figure it all out and, uh, and had a lot of insight through that kind of knowledge. But the, the big problem was the, uh, this obsessive doubting mind. And uh, there was such a, a strong desire to know things and to uh, and to, uh, to to collect and to to think and to figure it out. And then the, I became aware through this that I didn't know how to stop this, how to stop the momentum of all this thinking. And so this Watto idea seemed to me to be very uh, useful practice. So they, they, in the volume called uh, Chan and Zen Teachings by Charles Luke, uh, they had a kind of a description of the of how to do this, developing the Huato. And uh, so I would, uh, what I did was I, I had this, I had this insight into letting go, that I needed to let go of everything. So I. Uh, then how do you let go? And this became my obsession. How I know I should let go, but how do you do it? And uh, and uh, then uh, I kept trying to. And of course, the more you think about it, the more you're just repeating the same thoughts. I don't know. How do you let go? When you let go, how do you do that? You just do it, and you, and you go around in that way, and then. So then this Watto system uh, made sense because it was pointing to this, this whole process of like, how do you let go? I could make a question, how do you let go? And then the point of it was to listen to yourself, thinking that how do you let go? Not, rather than trying to answer the question, you're using the question mindfully. So you, you think to yourself, how do you let go? You think, and you notice before you think that, there's a space. Like you, you make this determination, I'm going to think, how do you let go? Now, that moment is, is, a, is a space, there's nothing. And then you, you deliberately think, how? There's something there, how? And then there's a space, do. Let's say something there, a word, do, and then another space, and then you, and then another space, let, another space, go. And then there's a big space. So that, there's a question mark, and then it's quite empty. How do you... So you're noticing, you're, you're developing awareness around the spaces, around the interstices, the gaps. Well, I never thought of that before, huh? because I'm so caught up in my thinking. And how do you let go? You go, you go. You got to practice. You got to. Then, 
never, never thought of noticing, of paying attention to space or to emptiness. And of course, doubt is very much where emptiness is. It, it stops your mind. What is the ultimate meaning of existence? Mind stops, doesn't mind does. I can't think of a clever reply to that one. Then, is there a God? Things like this, or uh, how do you let go? And then, by contemplating that, that the, the emptiness or the Space or the silence of the mind, you you begin to see how to to, to let go of just this, this the habitual thinking, the obsessive thinking, and you do it not by trying to get rid of thinking, but by actually thinking in a very deliberate way, so that you're you're not just caught in the in the in the momentum of thought, but watching but paying attention to determining to notice the space around the words rather than giving such importance to the words and the meaning of the words and to the, the emotion, the feeling of insecurity and uncertainty. Because then also, because you say, how do you let go? And then they, after you've deliberately thought that, then you see an emotion sometimes, wanting to figure out. There's a, there's a desire to know. And then you become aware of this, 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 this momentum, this desire to answer the question. And you begin to be aware of that also, this, this, this emotional reaction, emotional habits we have towards insecurity, uncertainty. Then in the, uh, with that silence, with that emptiness, then uh, I became also aware of the sound of silence. Then to notice, really contemplate that which was always kind of present in, in the, and here and now, but which was never noticed, which had no existence for me because uh, the conditioning of the mind was, was, was all I ever uh, was involved with. I was so full of myself, so so reactive, so caught in the momentum of habit. There was no space at all in my life. By the time I was 30, 30 years old, it's just kind of petrified in, in habit and habitual behavior. And, 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 instead, and it was leaving, you know, a sense of despair because just felt, if life is going to be like this, I remember on my 30th birthday, thinking, I was, I was in uh, the Peace Corps, my 30th birthday, I was in Saba, in Borneo, I'm 30 now. If I have to live 30 more years like this, 
oh, I couldn't bear it to spend 30 more years just being caught up in, in, this, in these reactions to life. You know, the idea of just being myself, this, this kind of creature, this personality that had evolved to the age of 30. The idea of spending 30 more years like that was, was really uh, depressing. So it was very much that that kind of determined when I'm, I'm going to do something about it. <laughs> so I came to, went to Thailand in day. So now it's 30 years, I'm 60 now, you see. So it, <laughs> 30 years have passed and it has been much better. in the first 30 years. So the first 30 years is very much a conditioning for mine, where you, 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 you know, you're born into a certain family and, and, you, and, they, and you acquire all their kind of attitudes and ideas and habits and, and you're, you're in a certain culture and class and religion and so on, you acquire all that and you're brought up to, and you're educated in a certain way, and with all the attitudes of, of that time, that period, and and you you acquire, you're getting as a child. You know, you're born. The mind's empty when a baby's born, isn't it? It just doesn't doesn't think, it doesn't have the language yet. It doesn't. It's uh, it's certainly sensitive, but it's not it's not full of itself. It's not it's not a personality yet not become somebody. And so then the conditioning process takes place where you, you develop these views, opinions, perceptions, emotional habits. Uh, and, and then by the time you're 30, uh, you become somebody. So then the the other 30, 30 years after that, I think they've been uh, letting go of all the becoming things. They're kind of relinquishing the, uh, the, the habits that I acquired the first 30 years. And that's not through rejection or through annihilation, but through recognizing the way things are. That they're, that, that what is, you know, the, the, like they say, and I think in the Bible, they say, unless you become like children again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. They mean, like, we have to become ch childish? Just to start sucking our thumbs again, or what? Or is that the, 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 the symbol of a child, something like that, the no-self, the purity of, of, of a consciousness that is not that is where we're not caught up in the delusions and the conditions of habit. Or Lung Po Cha saying, you know, when he went to, uh, when he started meditating, he, he, his, his first impression was, I'm becoming more stupid. Before he was, he was a study monk and he was becoming more learned. And then he 
started meditating, he said, I felt I was becoming more stupid. He said, I thought Ajahn Wan was trying to make me stupid. I don't know. I don't know that. But this awakening, awakening of the mind, because we do, we do become just very caught up in this conditioning. And you're, you're, you, you feel dead. You think the same old thoughts over and over again. You the same stupid reaction. Inadequate reactions to life. So much of it is, you know, I can see in, in my life, uh, before I became a monk, just so many uh, unsuitable reactions to things and fears, jealousies, and, and uh, worries, and, and this, this emotional habits that just keep reproducing all the time, no matter how hard you tried to get rid of them. Well, how do you, how can you, how can you free yourself from those habits? You know, that, you, that was the big, how could I live the next 30 years in freeing myself from just the, these very uh, dreary, uh, unsuitable habits that acquire? How to deprogram the, the, the being rather than keep programming and keep re- because by the time you're 30, there's nothing much new. You just keep reinforcing the habit. You tend to just reinforce the old habits over and over again until you die. So in, then in meditation is the deprogramming or letting go. How do you let go? By acquiring new habits? Or by... They, noticing the way things are. Oh, right now, the way it is, there's space, there's silence, it's always here and now. And then the insecurity, the feeling of insecurity, then, strangely enough, instead of making you nervous and depressed, is peaceful. At least I found that. When, and you trust in, in the just the don't know mind. It's peaceful. You find peace and, and uh, contentment. So in the fifth hindrance, which you keep as a as a, and, and for for stream entry, for sotapanna, stream entry or insight into the path. This Tao is, is one of the most uh, kind of powerful uh, obstructions because it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not through suppressing it that you've, you're liberated. It's through understanding it. The doubting, the wichikicca, the uncertainty about yourself, about whatever. I'd even use like things like like uh, not remembering somebody's name. And what what was his name? So the the non-plussing of the mind, where you, where you become non-plus, the mind just stops. And the sound of silence and the emptiness. So you're you're in consciousness. You're really aware of. Your, your, your 
your mind is, is, is embracing that emptiness. And then there is room there for thinking. But then thinking isn't, you're not thinking just through habitual thinking and, and, and through, uh, it's not just uh, being a helpless uh, kind of thinker caught up in your thoughts. That, and thinking is like something that is very useful and helpful, helps to remind you, helps, it's a tool to use rather than an obsession of the mind. I remember when I was obsessed with thinking, how can I stop thinking? I want to stop thinking. And and then, how can I stop thinking? Shut up! Shut up in there! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm tired of thinking. <laughs> so in the in the teaching of, of Dhamma, maybe the condition, the unconditioned. In uh, form and space, sound and silence, you, you get that perspective. In silence, when you listen to silence, what is, what is the result of that? Is there's awareness, you're awakened to silence. You're not just becoming uh, a kind of dead zombie and you know, silent like a corpse it's not silence of a corpse you know in that way you're just unconscious so there's consciousness but there's awareness of the silence and then then it be, then it becomes apparent of of the self you to think you to become somebody you have to start thinking feeling being caught up in the emotional reactions right want this, I don't like that. What is the, uh, how do you let go? I want to let go. I want to stop thinking. I'm fed up with thinking. I'm so tired of thinking. I want a holiday from thought. I want to become an arhat. I want to to have a little peace of mind. This kind of thinking. And then that thinking is, it, it comes, uh, you become somebody who wants or doesn't want or is guilty or happy or unhappy or despairing or elated or whatever, then, then the silence. And as you trust more in that attentive, aware, listening, awareness of listening, silence and space, the, the, un, the insecure, the uncertain, in rest there, you find you can sustain awareness there. It's a, a level of concentration that's sustainable. It's not, you know, it, it, it's a balancing concentration rather than, than a, an attached concentration. So on this retreat, uh, to encourage uh, you to contemplate these things and, and to uh, hopefully uh, you will uh, 
the develop the don't know mind, by the end of the retreat, you won't know anything at all. 